This show is part of the Pika Science Podcast, studying the intersection of video games and science. Hey everyone, it's Madison. I uh, just wanted to let everyone know this is a new episode type. It is called Pookie College and it is for older listeners. This episode does deal with alcohol. That said, we are doing another Q&A here in April, talking and following up on evolution, convergent, divergent, whatever evolutionary questions you have. And so there is a link to a Google form attached to the episode where you can submit your questions and we cannot wait to hear from you. So that said, uh, we will announce the next Pokey College episode at the end of this one. So I hope you enjoy. Thanks. Hey there, all you trainers, researchers, and scholars. It's time for Pokey College. So send the youngsters, picnickers, and pokey kids off to bed and snuggle up and get cozy because it's time, baby. It's time. Hey everyone, welcome back. Uh, it's me, Madison, if you can't tell, and welcome to the very first episode of Pokey College. So what is Pokey College? Well, it's a new episode type or show in the Pika Science podcast that uses video games to look at topics that are better suited for more mature listeners. The format's different from Pokey Science as it will consist of, you know, one cast interviewing guests, usually more than one, and pullbacks to our cast for clarification and further explanations. These episodes will often take a deeper dive into content in a way that we haven't really done before. So who is this for? Well, older listeners, right? Those of us who grew up with the games and aren't a 10-year-old kid anymore. So what kind of topics might you see? Well, everything from sexual reproduction, sexual variance, all sorts of historical topics, the gender gap in video games and tech, pretty much anything that may not be suitable for younger listeners or that can discuss mature themes. If an episode isn't to your liking, then you'll still find your normal episodes the following week. I hope you'll give it a chance. I think you're going to like what we're bringing. So recently I sat down and interviewed Doug Carson, who's a master mixologist, certified sommelier, and head of Liquid Art Mixology, which is a collaborative organization focused on cocktail culture, and the author of the soon-to-be-released Liquid Art Mixology book. So... Hey, I'm going to ask you the most important question of the episode. So what, uh, okay. what is alcohol and what makes it so important? Yeah. Um, and so what, what's funny is alcohol is actually defined as a drug. So if you've, if you've drank in a beer, you have done drugs. There is a chemical in it, ethanol, that gets into your bloodstream and starts uh, messing with your brain and certain organs. And um, that chemical is a byproduct of fermentation. That is when microorganisms such as yeast, most commonly used, start processing carbs and sugars and turn them into uh, ethanol and uh, acids. As for why it's important, I think it is just woven into human history. I mean, we were making alcohol before we had civilizations, which is pretty crazy to think about. So I'm going to ask you the next important question. How did humans discover it? Like, how long has this been around? Yeah, that that's a tricky question. It is, like I said, it's woven into our history. We've we've been making alcohol before. We had like Mesopotamia and um, and the riverbed civilizations. There is an enzyme in our bodies uh, called ADH4 that we have found in organisms dating almost 10 million years ago, which is pretty crazy. That and that that pretty much gives us wh- what our tolerance is because uh, alcohol. Al- excuse me, alcohol is not digested. Like typical liquids or foods, it actually seeps into our bloodstream almost immediately. And uh, then that enzyme goes through and breaks it down. In the meantime, it does its 
you know, effects that we all know on our body. And so, yeah, the enzyme's been relevant in, in organisms for 10 million years. Uh, when you talk about how we got introduced to it, again, we weren't we weren't really writing history before uh, uh, civilization, so it's hard to tell. But it's kind of easy to make the assumption that it's almost a caloric thing where we would be eating the fruit when it was at its ripest because that's when it has the sugars, that's when it has the most starch and, and most calories for our body. And uh, that is right before the moment it starts fermenting. And so it's pretty easy to see like we would – be eating fermented fruit once in a while and 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 i also like you could talk you could argue the idea of like monkey see monkey do we, we see some animals that uh, uh do eat um rotten fruit once in a while so we would go over and assume it's safe and start eating it and eventually that that um ethanol would would take effect on our bodies amarul is the one that they from africa where like it has the elephant on it because uh, i was taught that that like that is a fermented fruit that uh, elephants eat. Oh, okay. uh, and I've actually shown my kids videos. We've talked about it and kind of laughed. You're like, oh, that elephant is actually like intoxicated. Uh, yeah, yeah. That elephant is kind Absolutely. of swaggered there. Or we've Absolutely. watched videos of like uh, primates stealing uh, liquor from people. Monkeys are one of the big ones. Yeah. Giraffes. Uh, we've seen giraffes do it. Zebras do it. Uh, it's kind of cool to be like to think about the fact that you're like, okay, well, other animals maybe had discovered it before us. Right. Yeah. Again, it could just be a caloric thing. You know, we wait until the fruit is just perfect and it goes over a little bit and ferments. I'm going to ask you, why do we love it so much and why is it connected to social interactions? Yeah, I think anything that that can alter our perception in a safe level becomes almost addictive to, to humans. If you look at right now, there is an enormous amount of studies revolving around like microdosing on hallucinogenics. And, and that's really, really relevant right now in medicine and in sociology. And and so, yeah, if, you, if we can do it safely, I think that it it becomes a very appealing thing for people. I mean, to the point where it becomes addictive uh, to certain people. The second part of your question was uh, connected to social interactions. There's That's a real uh, sociological thing. I think there there's two reasons for that. One is that it was a privileged thing for alcohol was a privileged thing. You know, it was hard to make. It was hard uh, sought after. There's a whole wine called Tokai that was uh, in Hungary was reserved for kings. And right now you can buy it for thousands of dollars. It's one of the sweetest wines on the world. Um, very, very good stuff. I've had the pleasure of tasting some. And so I think it's being a privileged thing that like the poor would be like, oh, this, you know, Christmas, I get to go to the palace and have a, a sip of wine for the first time. And and the other half of that, I think it is tied into kind of the culture built around our early civilizations of like hunting and gathering, where everyone went out and did their jobs. And at the end of the night, you came back with the food and, and supplies, you built a fire, and everyone kind of ate together, everyone drank together, everything was a social interaction. And then in the morning you, you went to the next spot. So much to digest there. But first, I'm joined today with... Hey, it's Brittany. And hey, it's Jared. Yeah, so we're here to talk about all of this. So lots to respond to. I do want to point out that animals do consume alcohol or fermented fruit to the point where it has alcohol content. And uh, there may or may not be lots of videos on YouTube of it that are amusing. You know, no one's harming these animals. I do want to point that out. These are things that they are doing in nature on their own. It's not like, you know, someone's walking up and being like, hey, giraffe. Do you, uh, you want to get drunk here? So yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. Honestly, though, I do want to talk about the 
connection here. We uh, mentioned psychedelics and just kind of tying into not necessarily psychedelics or alcohol in general, but you know, the there is connections with many uh, religions and indigenous cultures to you know drug use. Um, uh, you know, across the globe. Uh, I'm not going to necessarily go into specifics here. I don't think I'm qualified to do so, but you know, I do think that it's worth noting that there are many cultures that have existed a lot longer than, you know, us here in the U.S. that have been doing this for a lot longer than we've been around. So something that I think about, and, you know, just the whole concept of it being a social thing, you know, we really are social creatures. I just want to point out, so obviously grapes grow all across the globe. You were just talking about like different cultures there's actually the only culture that isn't shown in history to have used their grapes to make wine or alcohol are actually um, indigenous Americans. There is proof in every other culture where wines grow that they fermented the grapes and made some sort of alcoholic beverage of them. So they either hit it really well or yeah, never. Only community that didn't, didn't do that there. I know we were talking about like psychedelics as well and how psychedelics are used and starting to be used for different medical purposes. This is actually a pretty new phenomena. Um, we were doing it in the 1940s and 50s. Yes, but then that all got Backlash. cut. Yeah. <laughs> so um, John Hopkins Medical is actually the first like modern time um, organization that was able to get permission from the government to start studying psychedelics again. And that was in 2000. So pretty recently in, you know, the grand scheme of things. And they actually in 2021, so just a couple of years ago here, were the first organization to receive a federal grant from the national NIH, from the NIH to receive funding for this. So they've been working over those whole 20 years, though, on research and, you know, have found that psychedelics can help with like, things like PTSD, anorexia, depression, and the topic of our show here, alcohol addiction. Yeah, actually, John Oliver did a whole thing on this a few weeks ago. And one of the things they talked about was that psychedelics were previously used to treat alcohol addiction and had pretty good, strong effects. Uh, yeah. And I know that right now, even the Cleveland Clinic is looking at studying it for uh, anxiety. And I know that there are trials coming up out here. Alcohol addiction is actually one of, if not the most dangerous kind of drugs to withdraw from a lot of other you know drugs that people think of typical drugs i mean will cause very severe side effects but don't have that chance for death that withdrawing from alcohol does so really alcohol when used in excess is very dangerous it can cause you know seizures hallucinations coma and death so super super concerning and yeah probably more research does need to be done in how to kind of cut that alcohol addiction. So when you are drinking, I do want to talk about really quick, just some physiological effects that happen from alcohol. So when you are drinking alcohol, it's all processed through your liver. So a lot of people do think that when you're like out drinking, you can drink a cup of water, you know, chill out for an hour and then you're like, okay, it's hundred percent not okay. You can't get in your car and drive, even if you feel sober. The legal limit of alcohol in your blood system would be like 80 if you're doing a like blood alcohol um and that's like two drinks and your body can only process alcohol at a level of about to take that down 
20 an hour. So those two drinks, it's going to take your body like three hours to process. I did just want to throw that out there because I don't want you guys all getting in your car thinking after you drink a glass of water that you can drive. Why does alcohol vary so much from region to region? Region to region is just is just the answer there, right? Every region has so every country, every civilization has so many different effects on it, whether it's the geography and the weather, what crops are relevant in that uh, country, what culture, um, outside influences. Uh, you know, you a really cool liquor called Chartreuse was born out of the Chartreusean mountains in France, where these monks were abstinent. Um, from alcohol and a group of conquistadors came up in there, wanted to learn a little bit from them and in return gave them the recipe of how to make alcohol. In return, they took hundreds of years and made this really, really elaborate recipe of like, they they boast like three to 400 herbs and spices in it and uh, and ended up making it. And so you see that that outside influence kind of seep in there and, and you can see that everywhere. It's just, it's, there's so many factors that lead to us having so many different types of alcohol. I do want to ask, you know, what does alcohol have to do with like culture and, and religion? Like, how does it tie into rituals? Like, does every religion and every culture view alcohol the same way? Uh, absolutely not. Yeah, there uh, there are uh, some religions out there in, in ways that they uh, utilize alcohol, and some abstain from it completely. There's a bunch of monks um, in in different religions that believe it clouds your judgment, and so they stay away from it. You know, Celtic druids that would take drums and drench them in beer because they believed it awakened the memory of the deer that the skin was made from and the wood that the tree was made from. Uh, you have uh, obviously Catholics and and everything stemming from like Christianity. And wine. <laughs> yep they they stick they use it in communion and say it's their God's son's blood or or in relation to that. So yeah, you see you see a lot of religions use it in a lot of different ways. Okay, lots to take in there for sure. You know, talking about region to region and religion. Any thoughts here, Jared? Well, thinking about geography and just region by region, I honestly we can take a look at two alcohols two types of alcohol and consider why, like why they're found in this region, why things are grown in different regions. Bourbon is American. We are the top producing corn country in the world, over about 400 hectare, million hectares a year in corn. And for it to be bourbon, it has to be 51% corn in the mash, which makes sense why we make it in America and we are the only uh, country in the world that does. And then it all comes down to what gets grown and, and what you need to make with alcohol. So rum is also another really big one. Sugarcane, which is why most of the rum in the world is made in South America or um, Central America, just because of that's where all the sugarcane is with all the molasses in the Caribbean. So it makes sense why rum is made down there. It all depends on region to region. Europe, of course, you've got a lot more of your wine because of the Mediterranean climate. Uh, America, you have your more your whiskey, your bourbon are all there. Rum, of course, is a lot more uh, Latin American. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, it definitely thinking about how geography impacts it. And I think that's something that we talked about earlier, too, that that's why we see different uh, histories of relations to alcohol too, just the way geography works in general. Uh, anything you want to add, Brittany? You know what? The only thing I can think of really is that we were talking about, you know, social topics. And it's kind of like when you're out with your friends and everyone's like, hey, have another shot because we're all having another shot. And I feel like that's kind of pushes everyone to feel included, but also like peer pressure. <laughs> Yeah, well, and as a teacher, you know, I make jokes that peer pressure isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's a way that we maintain societal structure. It's it's how we develop norms and customs. That said, I do want to point out as humans, we are actually really hardwired for social interactions. 
our brains actually have the strongest uh, neuro connections during learning when it's done in a social setting. And that social interactions actually create stronger connections for us and stronger emotions and stronger memories. And so to me, that makes sense that, you know, alcohol use would be a social thing. Okay, so I want to ask you, uh, what is sake and why is it so associated with Japanese culture? A blanket term for sake is rice wine, which is actually kind of inaccurate. It's more like beer. Wine in- incorporates fruit and fermenting them with their sugars, where beer we brew with like different grains. And rice being a grain, that's uh, kind of where it goes. As for uh, why it's important to, uh, to Japanese culture, the method has been recorded as far back as like 500 BCE in Japan. So it's, it's woven into its history, just like um, you know we mentioned earlier in this episode. And, and it's partly due to rice. Rice is the huge crop there. They, they brought rice over from india in about about 2400 years ago and it just thrived uh due to the weather due to the wetlands the uh, the humidity everything to do with japan it thrived so much though that it became a currency at one point and so to brew with it is just a, a natural kind of discovery that that came to be and now is one of their most popular drinks around the world tying into that like why is it not found in other parts of the world then especially if it's rice like that's such a common grain to have yeah I, um actually it, it is pretty frequently found um elsewhere they oh, well to, to start again it's it's the rice culture right rice is is dominant great or a dominant crop in in japan and um so sake uses a couple different ingredients one is rice water yeast and something called koji kin which is a mold spore as weird as that sounds and uh, koji is that tough ingredient to find outside of japan that being said there are 60 now today 60 non-japanese breweries that make sake and half of those are found in the u.s so u.s is actually coming in at second for the most sake brewed how does sake tie into like you know the religious spiritual and faith-based practices like those cultural aspects because i know like this especially ties into the games we see a lot of the regions that these games are based on their actual cultures do appear in the games uh so japanese um the, the culture is mostly um polytheistic so they believe in gods for you know a bunch of different things and they have a god just for sake uh, i'm gonna butcher the name here inari okamai the o- okami i think it's uh nari okami they uh they use a ton of different rituals to kind of honor this god and so one one they pour sake out at new construction sites um onto the ground to bless the ground they believe it's like the nectar of the god the another one they have uh, a group of people get really drunk on sake and then surround a wooden statue with um with big like uh, bamboo leaves or, or like big fern leaves and uh, then they have the rest of the town with torches who try to burn the statue and the guys with the leaves have to stop them and they're drunk and uh and then the third and probably most um controversial especially to like uh spca members is that they will uh, they have a whole festival where they bring carp out of the rivers or, or ponds feed them sake and put them back in believing it'll make them spiritually strong enough to fight off water demons okay so lots to take in there especially thinking about sake and its connection i i do want to talk about you know that while there are religions and cultures all over the world that use alcohol, some don't. You know, I think about like um, Hawaiian culture, it was actually um, banned for a long time. Or, you know, like Islam, it's not allowed. Or, you know, even Buddhism uh, discourages alcohol use because of the way it impairs judgment. 
Uh, and I think that's kind of important to point out too. And it ties into kind of what Brittany brought up earlier, kind of about, you know, that there are indigenous cultures that we know of that have never used grapes to make wine. So it is kind of interesting to think about that. This is a custom that is common, but not necessarily consistent. I would just like to add that rice is, you know, used in a lot of other alcohols, not just sake. And Budweiser, the original Budweiser recipe contains rice with their barley, and it is still in both Budweiser and Bud Light today. Look at that. The more you know. Um, I also want to talk about the Shinto because it's not really like Western religions. And some of the people who, you know, even follow some of the beliefs or practices don't necessarily consider it a religion just because it's not organized and structured the same way. There's no central organization. It's highly diverse and it's based in a lot of indigenous uh, religions and beliefs. So it's more of this collective of beliefs and customs and so forth. Uh, it is highly practiced, especially in Japan, uh, even for those who do not consider themselves religious. Um, I also want to point out that Okami is a kami, uh, which is not necessarily the same as a god, depending on your interpretation of it, just because, you know, kami are deities, but not necessarily the same. Uh, you know, it's hard to put, it's hard to draw parallels between two cultures that don't necessarily have parallels. And I don't want to draw parallels to Western cultures per se. So how does the history of like the Christian religions impact, you know, the spread, use and acceptance of alcohol in Europe? What about like France specifically? Yeah, now you're, now you're talking my language. Um, being a certified sommelier, uh, France is a huge, huge point of study for us. Wine, obviously, is, is the big product that comes out of France. And um, when we talk about the Christian religions, one is that Catholics actually saved the wine industry here in the U.S. Um, when Prohibition hit, we weren't allowed to drink wine, but the Catholics were allowed to. So you look at like that difference between religion and, and, and government, where government steps in and tells the whole country alcohol is bad, we can't drink it anymore. And then Catholics are like, well, we need it for our religion. So they were the only ones allowed to import and buy wine um, during those years. The second thing is there was a period of time where we had two different popes. We had a pope in France and a pope in uh, Italy. And the pope in France lived in a little village called uh, Chateauneuf de Pop, which nowadays is a really, really prestigious wine region to buy wine from. Uh, you can easily get a bottle from there for a couple hundred dollars. And it's right at the bottom of the Rhone Valley. And they would send out their clergymen and find vineyards across France that they deemed were suitable for God, if you will. And uh, they would then build a wall around said vineyard, and they were the only ones that were allowed to grow grapes, make wine, and give it to the Catholic Church in France. Nowadays, that the two-pope system has kind of been abolished. The only pope is now down in uh, Italy. Those vineyards, again, like the, the village itself, Chateauneuf de Pop, is a prestigious wine village. And uh, the vineyards that were closed off and, and, and walled, normal people have come in and bought those plots of land and start making wine. And what's cool is you, you can go buy a bottle that um, says close on it, uh, C-L-O-S, and that is uh, referring to enclosed or or it's one of these old vineyards that kind of had a part of that history in it. And, and so you can be drinking 
ordained holy wine, depending on, on how you look at it. I guess, and I know you talked about this a little bit, but if you have anything else that you want to add to it, like why is this wine so associated with France and French culture? Yeah, a big a big thing to do with that is is geography, right? Um, being a sommelier, half your battle is learning history and geography. The other half is, is grapes and wine. So the there's something called the wine band that um, is a, based off the latitude and longitude of where Venice Vinifera, which is the genus of vine that grows grapes, can grow. I believe it's 30 degrees north and 50 degrees south that wraps around the entire earth, and that's where this plant thrives. France is right, right there. That is the sweet spot and uh, so when they started growing it and uh, there's actually a brief part of history where uh, a, a louse a little bug kind of wipes half of france's vines out and they had to splice them with american plants to make kind of a hybrid that would withstand the louse and um, it worked but after that kind of restart of the wine industry the government stepped in really heavily regulated it and made it a cash crop just like rice in japan they made it as a huge export item and a huge part of their economy and and then it became part of like the world trade when we were exploring um the the americas wow so Lots to take in there about France. I do want to point out that France being in its position in Europe put it in a really great spot to trade, you know, kind of right in the middle, uh, Mediterranean access, access above, access below to water, like it's really a good location here to get and trade with pretty much anyone they wanted. I do just want to point out that England and France were, you know, in times of conflict a lot throughout history. <laughs> but England would like very conveniently forget that they were at war with France and be like, yo, you trying to trade us for some wine though? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a very English thing to do. Well, so it does help with France being in that perfect latitude to actually be able to grow all of the wine that it needed so that it could actually could trade, which because they have that grape, lovely grape latitude which uh, is the optimal conditions to actually be able to grow grapes in because if grapes are too ripe, you don't want to drink that wine. It tastes like cooked fruit and it's going to be super, super sugary unless you're really into sweet wine. And if it's too uh, underripe, it is going to be super, super acidic. There's actually not going to be a lot of alcohol on it. It's just not going to be very good to drink either. But France is kind of in that perfect position to be able to grow wine very, very well. For sure. I, what is that position? Like, how would we find that on a map? So you're going to want to look for in the latitudes, it's about 30 to 50 is the latitude. And I think France is in like the 40 range, if I remember correctly. So smack dab in the middle, like, <laughs> yeah, this is what we were because placed here to do. It's at 46 is the center of France. But also France also has mountains, which help because it'll help it cool down the grapes so they don't get super hot. So it is kind of in that absolute kind of perfect sweet spot that it wants to be at to be able to grow. Which is why also like Spain, some of the other countries as well, because they might be a little bit lower, but they're still in that area where they're not going to be super hot. They're not going to be super cold. They're going to be have that perfect warming that they need to be able to grow. I grew up in an area where they have an ice wine festival. And I think ice wine is disgusting because they let that grapes actually freeze, like make it through the first frost. And it's so disgustingly sweet. But it's some people's thing. Okay, so what alcohols are associated with like the UK, you know, England, Ireland, Scotland, the whole everything over there, Isle of Man, every, every little thing well. in between, like, like, <laughs> are there any commonalities between all these uh, different alcohols? 
Yeah, so uh, England is, is again, a sorry little state. They want everything, but they can't grow anything. They're cold, they're wet, they don't get uh, sunlight, they don't have a lot of land. So they just, they just <laughs> I'm sorry, England, but I, I love you, but, you know, they, they import everything that they can't have themselves. So they, you know, the tea they bring over from India, the, the spices, the, uh, you know, they bring in wine from France and from Spain and Italy. They, um, yeah, they bring in everything because they can't make anything uh as for the other and that like fits into like uh history of colonialism too and imperialism like the fact that they were bringing everything in all about assimilation baby (laughs) and yeah and then you look at you look at scotland and ireland like obviously they're really really famous for their whiskeys um they're really far north so they can't grow they're not in that great band they can't grow the venice vinifer grape for wine um so they end up growing hearty um, grains like wheat and uh, and the other one barley. Thank you. And so they they make whiskeys out of these. Scotland has a touch more regulation than Ireland, which makes Scottish whiskeys a little more high end, a little uh, better sought after. If I if I'm offending Irish people, I'm so sorry. Your whiskeys are really good too. And uh, they yeah they they can only really make whiskey just because of what they can grow. It, it really comes down to to geography and and weather to see what crops you can grow. So they they're similar, but not to not to England. And is that like why beer like is also associated with like you know the UK too? Absolutely, yeah. Like Ireland is really really famous for their beer. That's again because they can grow barley and wheat. And when you start brewing with it, it becomes ale, and then you can from or, and then you can distill it into uh, a liquor, a whiskey. Whoa, lots to talk in there about the UK. Uh, definitely want to think about. I don't know. I think this is a really great time to tie in colonialism, especially we've mentioned it a little bit already on the show. Uh, after you know the shift here in December, looking at uh, Paldea and Spanish history with colonialism, but you know UK has a huge complex history of colonialism and imperialism, and a lot of that was trade driven. You know, like hey, I want spice from here, I want that herb from here, I want that tea from here, that vegetable from here, that fruit from there. And while it has led you know the country to have a lot of fusion cuisine. You know, it does have long-lasting detrimental effects on the world, and I do want to point that out. There are parts of the world that are still heavily impacted by the effects of colonialism today, and I do not want to pretend that it is not that is something that you know has just gone away, hasn't, and the effects are still there. But I am also going to clarify off of what Doug did say. Uh, England does actually make wine. Uh, it is in the southern part of England and in Wales, where they have uh, chalk limestone soils, which help the grape grows. And the climate is warm enough that they can grow it. It's just a lot of sparkling uh, wine is what they'll grow there. So they like to do their uh, their beers, <laughs> their scotch and sparkling wine. Yep. Beer, scotch, sparkling wine. Three things that shouldn't be mixed together. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> not. <laughs> You shouldn't even drink all three of those things in the same like 24 hour period, let alone anything of those mixed together. All right. So the reason we're all here talking about Pokemon. So what connections do you see with alcohol in the Pokemon world, like in the games, anime, or even the manga? Yeah, I uh, I found a couple cool references uh, upon deeper research. I've always played the games. Um, I was a 90s kid, so I grew up with a Game Boy and, and my classic, you know, red and green. And uh, so looking looking deeper into those games and such, I, f- I found some cool connections. One, I found a, a couple items that could be tied kind of loosely to uh, alcohol. One is going to be uh, the agua- agu- aguave berry. 
the item description kind of leads me to one thing. Now, it's pretty pretty clear to me that like if you if you spelled the word and just took the a from the beginning and threw it at the end, it's guava, right? That's pretty 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 stellar uh, mixing up of spelling. But then I read the item description, which says that it gives you a small amount of HP, but also confuses you. So that almost makes me think it might be a I blend thought of agave, right? Which I, agave, yeah, I was thinking agave with like the plant from Mexico that tequila is made from. Tequila, yeah, yeah. I always thought it was that. I never thought it was guava. Oh, okay, yeah. So that, that's originally I was reading. I was like, that's obviously guava, but the, they moved okay. the a from the end from to the front. But <laughs> see, see what. I I know <laughs> right but then I, I read the description i was like wait a minute why would why would guava make you confused so i think that's a, a cool it might it might be a blend you know there's a lot of blends that um they they make it might be a little hint of both it makes you confused because they're drunk <laughs> maybe that's they're, it too maybe like all those berries are just like fermented to the right level right, like we said earlier right. Yeah, absolutely. And they're eating it at that right fermentation, and absolutely. they're like staggering like the giraffes in the videos that we watched. <laughs> and another cool one is bitter herba mystica. They reference it as a mystical herb that has a legend that is really, really bitter and hard to eat. But if you do, it will give you health benefits. This is an, to me, reading it is an homage to all the herbal tinctures and uh, early tonics that were alcohol that people were drinking in um, apothecaries. You know, you look at gin; it started this way. You look at uh, chartreuse from from France. You look at the uh, the one we were talking about, absinthe from France. They all start that way as being a medicinal thing in a apothecary, but in reality, you're just getting people drunk, and that's why they feel better. We can get a little more direct and stop making assumptions. In the graphic novels, the the grandpa character gives um, Hazel's Pokemon a uh, uh, tries to give him sake. And in this scene, uh, Hazel stops them and uh, stops him and says, no, 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 you have to give Pokemon um, something called Amazake. Amazake? Sake? uh, No, Amazake. (laughs) And uh, yeah, clearly it's a mix of the word amazing and uh, sake, if you you look at it. And it has the same effects as sake on the Pokemon, but it's just safe for animals. Um, So it's it's animal-friendly booze, uh, which is... In the early days of the games, the Japanese original version of green. In 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 our American ones, we you go to a man who is like really really tired, and uh, he's blocking the path, so you have to go get him a cup of coffee. Um, but in the Japanese version, he references that he um, had too much fermented berry juice, and uh, <laughs> that you have to go get him a coffee to kind of wake him up to get him out of the way. And uh, I mean, a you're referencing. Vaguely, you're referencing uh, alcohol with the fermented berry juice, and then also coffee is intrinsically related to like being a hangover cure, which it's not. Okay, so a lot of connections here with Pokemon. I totally forgot about the the dude being drunk in the game. I knew that at one point. I totally forgot about it. If I'm not mistaken, the Japanese original game also had someone who was like a peeping tom. And they totally rewrote it in the English version. Jared is shaking his head. Yes. Yeah, it's in the cerulean. Yeah. In the, he's outside of the, the gym <laughs> looking in. Gross. Gross, 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 gross. I do want to, you know, draw a connection here that this is the 90s and parental advisory and, you know, this conservatism that the U.S. went through in the 90s did have a lot of censorship. Um, you know, I think back to 
everything from D. Schneider. Pro, uh, I mean, it started in the 80s. And I think back to everything from D. Schneider having to, you know, talk in front of Congress <laughs> to, you know, the, uh, the parent advisory warning labels becoming a thing. And it's, it's really interesting to me because I totally grew up with friends who weren't even allowed to play Pokemon because of those reasons. And it's like, okay, well, we edited things that didn't necessarily need to be edited. Like, you know, your jelly donuts. Are Pokemon drunk, though? Bots? I feel like some could be. Psyduck <laughs> gives me when big... When they're, when they're eating those berries, though, are they like... No, Psyduck gives me big drunk vibes. That's why he's always got that headache and is always just, like, laying over, like... <laughs> he's the old recovering alcoholic. Maybe. Or maybe there's some, like, I don't know, fermented kelp in the water he's snacking on. I don't know. Some f- some fermented applin. <laughs> That the some uh, bird is going to be eating on, a pidgey is going to be eating on or picking on, and it's just going to be drunk walking around after a while. So what about, Brittany, he did say in the game that you gave the guy coffee for his hangover. Like, that's no, not a absolutely thing, right? not. 100% no. So coffee and alcohol are both diuretics. That means that it's going to stop your ability to reuptake water. So you're going to be dehydrated after you're drinking all night. So if you wake up and drink more coffee, you're going to further dehydrate yourself and you're going to feel worse. <laughs> I, I think of uh, there was an episode of Happy Days. I remember where they gave Richie a um, frozen steak and a bag of frozen peas to handle his hangover. I mean, that would help more. <laughs> your okay. liver, your your body isn't like breaking down fat for sugar. So I mean, eat at so hopefully he cooks it first. That actually could use. Oh, eat it. No, no, he was just putting them on his head. Oh, I mean, that could help. You probably have a headache, but really, just drink water and eat food because those are most important. You have that headache because you're dehydrated, so all the little blood vessels around your brain are shrunken up and shriveled. So drink some water, have a spoonful of peanut butter, and you'll feel great. <laughs> what Pokemon do you think would have connections to alcohol in the Pokemon world and why? I love this question because I'm going to start off with a really good one. Um, so as I mentioned earlier in the podcast... <laughs> Mr. Mime. <laughs> yeah, right? He's just He's not even a Pokemon. He's just a dude really drunk. <laughs> yeah, I'll battle for you, kid. <laughs> As, as earlier mentioned in the podcast, there's a Japanese um, festival where they feed carp uh, sake to make him strong enough to fight off water demons. So I therefore uh, wager that the way to evolve Magikarp is to get it really drunk. That is my wager. I think that is how you get Magikarp to turn into Gyarados. Unfortunately, uh, there I was looking to try and find something to help with my hypothesis. They are not good at fighting dark. They are not good at fighting ghosts. And uh, there's no, they have like brine, which I thought would be kind of similar to some kind of effects of alcohol. It's not, but um, I still like the concept. So some more realistic ones would be like Vespaqueen being a, if I, if I know this correctly, again, I, I, uh, I'm familiar with the older games more, but the, the, um, the bees are inside her, her base, correct? Uh, not on her body. They like have a, oh wait, are they in her body? Ew. I thought I thought I was reading some some uh, you might, you might centuries be right. you that might said be right. she sends oh. she sends grubs from her from her base. I believe is what some of they. Were I saying. think her base is like their home. Okay, but not the hive. Because I think in it, the anime that's how they depicted it, but that could be wrong, and it could just be her body. I don't know. Either way, that's weird. In the Combi deck centuries, they say they clump together to make hives. So I don't know. Either one. Um, honey is the base of uh, mead which is a honey wine. The mead is, when I talked about earlier in the uh, podcast about alcohol outdating civilization, it was mead. We were fermenting honey before we were making um, civilizations. And so 
to talk about that, I mean, that very clearly could be tied into some kind of, you know, we're going to keep a couple of Vespa Queens. I don't know how hostile they are. I know Beedrills would kill you but instantly, but, uh, and then they're based, I think, off like a Hornet or a Wasp, which don't honey, but Vespa Queen could definitely be utilized in some way, nature, or form to make, uh, to gather honey and make, and make, uh, mead with. I'm going to pronounce this one wrong. I think Cherubi. Every deck entry says how delicious it is. Every single one of them, which I don't. It's kind of weird that we're eating a living berry, but uh, they said other other Pokemon are eating this living berry. Uh, people think it's delicious. So uh, very clearly, the next step is to start making wine out of it. In my opinion, I'm gonna make cherubi wine. Um, and then one of the one of the more fascinating ones, just because of my personal preference, I love ghosts and dark Pokemon. Is the Sinistee and Poltegeist uh, combination here? In Sinistee, the deck entry is is pretty pretty similar to like the effects of alcohol where it says it will make you do things that you don't want to do it possesses you quote unquote it drains your your energy which you know alcohol uh, is a depressant and um and it also talks about how people who take sips often spit it out because it's nasty and that kind of relates to like your first your first sip of alcohol you know i remember and then you get to paul Teagais, which tastes amazing and um i think that is could be you know a homage to that kind of idea of like i remember my first grain alcohol which tasted like crap but now as an almost 30 year old drinking fine wines i find them delicious after they've aged and uh they have the same exact effects as that vodka does so i think that's a, a cool little homage mr mime is totally giving me snl drunk uncle, uncle vibes now and i can never unsee it <laughs> who's your drunk funkle uh i gotta say though i think a few other pokemon small because there is olive alcohols right i'm when i'm just thinking of like popping small of into a dry martini honestly oh, that works too. yeah i was thinking a cocktail yeah but i think there is uh fermented olive uh alcohol if i'm not mistaken i've never had it but i'm pretty sure it exists what are your two thoughts anything you both want to add um i think badoo makes me think of alcohol just because he looks like a little baby hop and then budweiser you know i don't know i see connections there I thought applin because of ciders, alcoholic apple cider, or just ciders in general made with apples that have been fermented. So applin makes perfect sense. And I think of, especially with ciders, I try to think back to history. There are definitely points in history where it was safer to drink alcoholic cider than the water. And people would rely on drinking things like cider over water just to make sure they weren't getting poisoned. (laughs) Well, that's like with tea, hot tea. When they were uh, building like the Transcontinental Railroad and stuff like that, the Chinese were the ones that were getting us sick because they were boiling all their water instead of everyone else who was just drinking it straight. Yeah, no, there was actually it was a safer to do the tea. Long like period of time where pe- that's why poor people were getting sick because they had to drink the water and the water was contaminated and people that had more money drink alcohol. Alcohol was fermented, didn't have bacteria and organisms floating around in it. Going back to the glass of wine at the King's Palace. Yep. So full circle, full circle. Mm-hmm. In the, yep. in the end, it's the wealth disparity. <laughs> it's always a wealth disparity. <laughs> Literally always. Which legendary Pokemon do you think would have rituals like involving alcohol and why? Let's start with uh, Ho-Oh. This is obviously based off of the Chinese Phoenix. And is uh, the Chinese Phoenix is often depicted in the Lunar New Year. So this is... Uh, like the Chinese 
variant, right? Like this right. Specific. Yep, okay. absolutely. And so the phoenix obviously representing, you know, restart, rebirth, um, dying and re re coming back to life. So I definitely could see a festival of Ho-Oh looking just like that. You know, uh, let's, you know, every so many years or, or whatever timeline, let's, let's, it's the year of Ho-Oh or, and having that celebration, um, I think would be absolutely perfect with people just enjoying alcohol as it is. The next one I kind of looked at was Ente. From my research, he is uh, kind of depicted from Shishi. Um, yeah, the, one of variants, different lion dogs. There's uh, all sorts of different relations to it. Right. And um, so I looked into kind of some of their cultures, what they do uh, around Shishi. And uh, one of the things they do is they like bring your newborn baby in front of the statue. It'll protect them. And so... When I think about that tie, that loose tie of like, okay, you're baptizing your child by bringing them to this statue and praying to this deity, praying to this Pokemon. When I make that tie, there's also like red wine involved. So I picture like a party of some sort where you bring your, the village surrounds the statue, you bring your newborn to the statue and all the adults are enjoying like a sophisticated red wine type beverage. And I see that of like, also loosely tied to like Ente, I believe is the fire um, dog, right? Because you have yeah. ice and lightning and then you have the fire. So, you know, red wine, it, just like in Christianity culture being tied to like blood, um, as well as like Greek and Roman, the fire being same thing tied to this this red wine. That actually makes sense. I'd never thought of it that way. That like if these cultures evolved naturally with like a fire god like living nearby, you might be like, okay, well, we drink red for him. Exactly. That's yep. a really interesting thought. I had never thought of it that way. That's really cool. <laughs> the next one, this one's a, uh, a a tie to my heart because you can only find one of these in uh, in New York near the Great Lakes where uh, where I reside. Um, the Lake Guardians, uh, I'm going to butcher these names because this was not past my time. But uh, uh, Oxy, Aslef, and Mesprit. Yeah, Mesprit. Mesprit. Lake Guardians are loosely tied to a couple of different things like nymphs, um, elves, or pixies. I would almost expect these guys to be in like the in the Galar region, like being more um, Celtic in nature, personally. Um, you know, cause that's what, personally, what I tie like the, the nymphs and the elves to is, is that Celtic, um, culture. But, uh, yeah. So often when, when we worship or, or give worship to, to such creatures like nymphs, elves, and pixies, we often view them as, um, just ornately good. There are some bad stories about nymphs drowning people, but you know, we'll just kick that under the rug. So uh, often when we, when we give thanks to these creatures, we bring them a bottle of like our finest liquors, like really fine cordials, um, your finest uh, variant of wine. And you leave it by like the riverside, you leave it by a shrine or you go into the woods and offer it to them in person. So I definitely could see, you know, walking into a, a, a mystical forest with the lake and one of the uxir or mess spirit i'm gonna butcher those names coming to you and you being like here is a bottle of cognac get drunk please (laughs) well lots to take in there and i do think it's awesome to think about the idea of parallels between our world's cultural festivals and celebrations and religious celebrations and how they might have those similar connections in the pokemon world thinking about how cultures would naturally evolve alongside you know having a literal water deity living down the street and be like oh that's you know our village protector Suicune. and to me like that really 
has a lot of a uh, lot of prospect and possibility because we've seen things like that in the games and in the manga and anime. And it would make sense to me that we would see some similarities. But I do want to point out like wine can be an important uh, part of Lunar New Year. And I know that kosher wine is actually, you know, it's a thing and is, has connections to things like Passover or the Sabbath. Um, so I do know that there are, you know, religious and belief systems that have connections to alcohol in, you know, really specific ways. And I don't know if either of you have anything you wanted to add as we're wrapping up the episode here. I said wine is very important in uh, communion in the Catholic Church as well. That's another big one. And then that's the only religion that I do know of that has a big emphasis on uh, wine being a part of it. The only thing I have to add is just drink your freaking water, please, if you're drinking alcohol. Well, and also, also, don't drink yeah, your age. Yes. Don't do that either. But if you are of age, drink plenty of water and you can't drink a glass of water and get in your car and drive. Please, for me. Thank you. Jared, do you have anything else you want to add before we leave? I was going to say, just drink responsibly, kids. That's all that matters. Well, not kids, adults, but drink yeah, responsibly. Adults, but drink responsibly. Yes, drink responsibly. Drink We're all kids at heart, okay? Yes. It gets harder when you have kids. <laughs> on that note, join us next time on PokeCod where we talk about unusual sexual reproduction. Ooh. See you back here next time. Bye. Bye.